Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Brothers and sisters, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 9. And if you would, please rise as well as we honor the public reading of God's Word. This evening, looking at Deuteronomy chapter 9 and then through chapter 10 to verse 11 of chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 9 through 10, 11. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself. Cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Therefore, understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you. So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord has said to you. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the, up- <coughs> or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day From the day that you departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Also in Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath so that the Lord was angry enough with you to have destroyed you. When I went up into the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord made with you, then I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. Then the Lord delivered to me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days and 40 nights that the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded image. Furthermore, the Lord spoke to me, saying, I have seen this people, and indeed they are a stiff-necked people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God, had made made for yourselves a molded calf, 
you had turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord had commanded you. Then I took the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. And I fell down before the Lord as at the first, for, at the, at the first 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all your sin which you committed in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was angry with you to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me at that time also, and the Lord was very angry with Aaron and would have destroyed him. So I prayed for Aaron also at that time. Then I took your sin, the calf which you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it and ground it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I, made, and I threw it its dust into the brook that descended from the mountain. Also at Tabra and Masa and Kibroth Hatavana, you provoked the Lord to wrath. Likewise, when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and possess the land which I have given uh, you, then you rebelled against the commandments of the Lord your God, and you did not believe him nor obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Thus I prostrated myself before the Lord forty days and forty nights. I kept prostrating myself because the Lord had said he would destroy you. Therefore I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your inheritance, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not look on the stubbornness of this people or on their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us should say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land which he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to kill them in the wilderness. Yet they are your people and your inheritance, whom you brought out by your mighty power and by your outstretched arm. At that time, the Lord said to me, Hew for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain, and make yourself an ark of wood, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood, hewed two tablets of stone like the first, and went up the mountain having the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord had spoken to you in the, in the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark, which I had made. And there they are, just as the Lord commanded me. Now the children of Israel journeyed from the wells of Bene Jaakan to Maserah, where Aaron died, and where he was buried. And Eleazar, his son, ministered as priest in his stead. From there they journeyed to Gudgoda, and from Gudgoda to Jatbatha, a land of rivers of water. At that time, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion nor inheritance with his brethren. The Lord is, is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God promised him. As at the first time, I stayed in the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord also heard me at that time, and the Lord chose not to destroy you. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, begin your journey before the people, that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord once again in prayer. 
Oh, Father, how we do pray that you would open up our eyes to see the wonderful grace that you have shown to us in your Son, the Lord Jesus. Lord, very often it is our own overly high estimation of our own righteousness that, pre- that prevents us from seeing the wonderful and incomprehensible depth of the grace that you have shown to us in your Son. Lord, help us to see the depth of our sins, that against that backdrop we would be able to see the greatness of your grace. May it be, Lord, that you would open up our eyes to these things, that our hearts might be stirred in love for your name all the more. For we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it is certainly an interesting providence of the Lord that we come to this passage this evening, especially in light of uh, the passage we looked at this morning. This morning, we looked at the way in which in the Gospels, the Lord Jesus Christ, with the coming of the Gospel of Grace, still preaches about the abiding significance of the law. And here, we turn now to the law, where Moses preaches about the gracious way in which God brings his people into the land. And so we see in the law, the gospel is preached, and we see in the gospel, the law is preached, showing that the story of the scriptures is consistent all the way throughout. Moses here asks the question, uh, uh, why is it that you are being brought into the land? And the answer is, it's not at all because of your righteousness. It's not at all because of anything that you've done. It is simply because of the grace of God. There is nothing that you can say that you have done apart from God's grace that would lead him to bring you into the land. Everything has been done by God. Now, as even as we think about this particular topic and the grace of God, uh, you probably know stories of times when people would boast about things that they had no business boasting of, that they, would, that they did something, but really most of the work was done by another person, and the person that was doing the work and doing the boasting just didn't realize that he was really only able to do what he was able to do because he had an enormous amount of help. There is a, a show where this, this theme is used. It's a kind of a comedic show. It's a detective show. And in this particular episode, there is a, a cop who's kind of off of his game. And so he's uh, feeling bad. And then the uh, main characters in the story, they try to help him solve a case without him knowing that they were helping. And at the end of the episode, you know, the case is solved. And then the, this detective goes back to boasting, how he, he's so proud of all that, that he's done. But for the audience, it's quite comedic because he actually did nothing to deserve uh, any of the, the credit. He just didn't realize that he had been helped so much. And it's uh, things like this that lead us to, to, to see that this kind of boasting is, of course, foolish. If you do not recognize that the things that you do or the benefits you receive are ultimately dependent upon another, any kind of boasting that would come out of that is, in fact, foolish. And the same is true spiritually with salvation. Everything comes from God. For you to boast about something that you have done and not recognize that everything comes from God is, in fact, highly foolish. And so Moses wants the people to be clear. He says in the beginning of chapter 9, in the first three verses, you're going to go in and you're going to dispossess nations that are far greater than yourselves because God is a consuming fire and he's going to do this for you. But when you go in, do not think that this is because of anything in you. It is certainly not because of your righteousness. And the rest of the passage is about the way in which Moses seeks to prove that it certainly cannot be a part of your righteousness. Now, Moses says, already spoken of a number of other reasons why the Israelites cannot have any boasting. He has spoken of their strength. 
He's, he said in chapter seven, verse seven, that you are not to think that this is because of your great might that you're going into dispossess all these nations or because you are so numerous that the Lord has set his affections on you. You're, you're a weak nation and all of the nations around you are greater and mightier than you are. It is not because of any of these things. Moses warns again later in chapter eight, verse 17, that when you come into the land, you are not to think that's because of my power and by my strength that I have done all of these things. It is not because of that. It's because the Lord has in fact blessed you. And here Moses goes even further. It's not just that you have no strength in yourself and it's God that's doing all the work for you, but even your righteousness, God is not acting for you because he looks and he sees your righteousness. Rather, Rather, he is doing it even though he sees your sinfulness. Now, why is this important? It's important because it is absolutely necessary to recognize that God is the author of salvation and that the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is your sin, which is the reason why you need to be saved in the first place. The only thing that you contribute to your salvation is your sin. It is not your strength. It is not your righteousness. As any reason why God loves you, it is because God chose to set his affections on you and because he has chosen to act on your behalf in his son, the Lord Jesus. And if this is the case, then there can simply be no boasting. There can be no boasting in anyone except for the Lord who has acted so graciously for his people. Now, going even further, if we remember that this chapter, this long passage where Moses recounts all of these failings of the people of God and the way in which God continued to be gracious to them, all of this is a continuation, is a, is a continuing uh, of Moses to expound uh, the great principles in Deuteronomy chapter six that he laid out, that the great command that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. This is a continuation of that. And so the, the point of this, in, in terms of its relationship to the context, the point of this passage is to say that there is ultimately no way to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength if you do not recognize the depth of your sin and the greatness of God's grace in light of that. Your love for God is a response to the great love which God has shown to you. What do you have that you did not receive? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. And if you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? This is also the reason why uh, the doctrine of Calvinism and the, the great debate between Calvinists and Arminians, and Arminians and predestination and all those things is so important. It's because in Calvinism, what we are affirming is that in every part of salvation, everything was done by the Lord and your sin is so bad that we can describe you as being totally depraved and in absolute dependence upon God. And if he does not act, then you cannot be saved. God does not look to you out of any consideration for your goodness, your will, your ability, your usefulness, your power, your strength, your righteousness, or anything. He simply chooses you out of his great love, out of his love, and saves you through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at this passage as we consider God's grace and salvation by grace in particular. We're going to look at this passage under two headings. First, we're going to consider the reason God did not save Israel, which is their righteousness. He did not save them because of their righteousness. And then secondly, we're going to, to look at the reasons why God saved them, particularly looking at the way in which Moses expounds the wonderful grace of God uh, in this passage. 
Now, the first thing, notice the very first thing that's spoken of in this passage as Moses begins to look at uh, this particular question of why the people of God are being brought into, into the wilderness. The first thing he seeks to prove to the people and to remind them of is that they are in fact quite sinful. Uh, this is the, 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 the immediate response that Moses gives in verses four to six. It is not because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. Then in verses seven through 24, Moses recounts all of the ways in which the people of God have sinned. And he focuses predominantly on the issue of the creating of the golden calf. That was sort of the, the paradigmatic uh, great sin of the people. That was the, the, the climactic sin against God himself. And he mentions many other things, many other ways in which the people sinned, but that was really the great sin where they showed uh, that if God were to wipe them off the face of the planet, God would in fact have been just. They had sinned grievously against the Lord. Now, this section in particular, from starting in verse seven, as Moses, from verses seven to 24, he, he recounts the history of, of all their sins. This section is bookended by Moses's, by Moses's description of the people. Notice at the end of verse seven, from the day that you departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. And Moses says the same thing at the end of verse 24. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. The, the, the history of the people of God in the wilderness is a history of their sinning against the Lord and of his continual grace and mercy. And where, so whereas last week or two weeks ago, we looked at Deuteronomy chapter eight, where we saw the way in which God's provision for the people of God in the wilderness was a reason why they were to love him. So too now Moses goes back to those wilderness days and discusses that wilderness time, not from the perspective of God's care, but rather from, from the perspective of the people, that the people have been utterly sinful and completely unfaithful to God uh, in the wilderness and particularly with the golden calf. Now, just, just remember as we consider the, the particular sin that Moses highlights here, the sin of the golden calf, just remember the context of what is going on at this point when the people of God commit such a great sin. Remember that they had just seen the glory of God descend in fire and smoke and thunder with earthquakes on the mountain. And they were so amazed at what they saw that they begged Moses never to hear this voice again. And remember how we looked in, at the end of chapter five, when Moses was established as the prophet of God so that the people would no longer have to hear these words uh, thunder from heaven again, that uh, God himself laments. He says, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments. God knows that they appear to fear him now, but they will in fact quite quickly turn away from him. And so after seeing all of this glory, Moses goes up on the mountain they don't know where he is, or they can still see the cloud and the fire uh, as they wait for him. And Moses himself is now receiving the, the tablets of stone. He's receiving the instructions for how God is going to dwell with his people, dwell with his people in the camp and to establish a city where God can have fellowship with his people, even though they are sinners. And as they are to receive all these blessings, they then make the golden calf. While Moses himself is receiving these instructions for the tabernacle, which is to be the great pattern of heaven. Now notice even in the text, the, 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 the emphasis of the description of their sin is the speed with which they have turned away from the Lord. 
This is mentioned um, in verse 12, uh, and then later as well as Moses recounts um, in verse 16, the way in which he describes the people's sins, that you have turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord has commanded you. Even though they were receiving such great blessings, they had sinned, and the sin was so grievous that Moses then, when he sees them, takes the two tablets of stone and he breaks them in front of him, in front of them. And the reason for this action is because the tablets, as are mentioned several times in, in Deuteronomy chapter nine, the tablets were meant to be a sign of the covenant, that all these covenant blessings, that God would dwell with his people, that they were represented by the law, which Moses had given to them and which God had even written with his own finger on these tablets. And so Moses takes these two stones and he breaks them in front of them, showing that uh, according to Moses and according to God, uh, they have so sinned against God that the covenant is now broken. They now have no right to any of the promises, no right to any of the blessings which God had given to them. And so God then responds by saying that he is so angry with them that he is about to wipe them off the face of the planet. He's not only angry with his people, but he's also even angry with Aaron. And he even offers, he says, you know, I'm going to completely destroy this people, and then I'm going to make of Moses a greater nation. And I'm going to just start over with you. Now, the, the important thing to recognize at this point is that if God would have done this, if, if God would have completely destroyed this people, he would have been just. He would have been well within his right to do so. It would have been an act of justice for which God would, should have received great praise. So bad and so heinous was the sin that while Moses was receiving the, these great blessings of having worship that was going to be patterned off of heaven itself, and while they were, go, they were going to be able to dwell with God in the camp, while uh, they had just seen uh, the glory of God descend on the mountain, and they had heard his voice thunder from heaven that they had so quickly turned aside and had made a calf of gold. If God would have completely destroyed them, God would have been just. Now, that is the great event that Moses speaks of. But notice there are a number of other events, particularly in verses 22 through 24. Moses lists four of them. He, men he mentions Tabra, Masa, Kibroth, Hatava, and Kadesh Barnea. Tabra was uh, the place where immediately after setting out from Mount Sinai, after God had just encamped among them, they immediately set out to go to the promised land. And the first place they come to, they begin to complain against God. And in their complaint, God then sends a burning fire to destroy some of them because of, uh, because of their sinful complaining. In Masa, the people of God put God to the test and ask uh, for water, testing him to see whether or not he will actually uh, provide and care for them, which was just after the Exodus. God had just thrown uh, the Egyptians into the sea. They had just seen his great salvation, and then they doubted him and then put him to the test to see uh, whether or not they would actually uh, care for them. In Kibroth Hatava, the people desired meat. They actually desired to go back to Egypt. They said, at least in Egypt, we get to eat all this meat. And this was, again, just after God decided that he would dwell in the midst of his people. They would rather dwell in Egypt where they could eat meat rather than dwell with the only God who had just delivered them out of slavery. They were actually asking to go back to that slavery. In Kadesh Barnea, the people of God refused to enter into the land. 
Uh, this is where only Joshua and Caleb were uh, faithful and willing to go into the land. The people refused. And then when, uh, when the people saw that God was going to send them in the wilderness to die for 40 years, then then they say, well, now we'll, we'll go up. And so then they go up without, God's, uh, without God being with them and they are soundly defeated. All of these things are ways in which uh, Moses shows the people of God, they had committed this great sin of the golden calf, but that was not even all that they had done. They sinned continually against the Lord. And even, this is just a small number of examples that Moses could have drawn from. He's already mentioned in Deuteronomy 4, the Baal of Peor incident where the people of God uh, married foreigners and started uh, worshiping idols. There was another rebellion where the people of God uh, wanted water, parallel to the one at Massa. There was Korah's rebellion. There were the complaints against Moses and his wife. All of these things were, were ways in which the people of God continually sinned and in which Moses is perfectly justified in describing them as being rebellious from the day that I knew you. They had always been rebellious against the Lord. Now, obviously, obviously, if you recount the the history of the people of God, their wilderness wanderings, the only conclusion you could come to for them is that you you are not receiving this land because of your righteousness. You are not receiving this land because of your righteousness. But so great is is the, the deceit within the human heart that Moses knew after all of these things, they would be tempted to say this. They'd be tempted to say, well, it's because I'm righteous. It's because, uh, you know, I may have messed up, but I'm certainly better than all those Canaanites. Notice even in verses four and five, as Moses describes this distinction, he says it is because of the wickedness of the other peoples that they are being driven out. But it's not because of your righteousness, because you're just as sinful as they are. Ultimately, the wickedness of the Canaanites is in no way a distinction with the Israelites, because they are just as sinful. The the point of righteousness is not a distinction at all. God is going to judge them, yes, because they're sinful, but he's certainly not bringing you in because of your righteousness. And so if you were to ask then, where are the righteous people? Where are the righteous people on the earth at this point? The Canaanites weren't righteous. They're being kicked out of their land because of their wickedness. But the Israelites, the people of God, certainly aren't righteous. Where are they? And the answer is they were nowhere to be found. There is no one on the earth who is righteous in himself, no, not one. And before, before you try to distance yourself so far from the people of God at that point, before you try to say, you know, I, I'm not like them, I would never have done that. Remember what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, that you would not have done the same thing if you were in their place. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And this is ultimately the testimony that all people are like the Israelites and if left to themselves would do exactly the same thing. And then this is why then the Apostle Paul in Romans uh, chapter 3, as he is concluding his great section on the sinfulness, the, the universal sinfulness of all people, will say, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are under all under sin, whether it be the people of God 
whether it be those who are outside the people of God. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the flesh of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And the testimony of Moses agrees with this very thing. You are not going to enter the land because of your righteousness. Salvation is not because of your righteousness. It is only by grace. It is only by grace. And this is what Moses bears witness to. It is not because of your righteousness. It is rather by grace. And there are really two Two ways in which Moses describes the grace of God, two aspects of this, of this grace that he highlights for us in this passage. And that is, first, that God is bringing the people of God into the land, not because of their righteousness, but because he is being faithful to the promise that he made to the forefathers. He's being faithful to his own promises. And then secondly, because there is a mediator between the people of God and God. It is God's faithfulness to his own promises and it is the presence of a godly mediator. That's the only reasons why the people of God are brought in. And we'll look at those two, uh, two aspects of the grace of God in turn. Notice in verse 5, it, this is actually the, the main answer that's given in terms of the reason uh, why the people of God are actually brought into the land. They're not brought in because of their own uh, righteousness, but rather uh, in verse 5, that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not because of your righteousness. It's because God himself is being faithful to his own promises. And this is actually something that Moses picks up on as well as there, Moses recounts his own mediation uh, to, to God on behalf of the people. In verse 27, he mentions again that uh, they are uh, pleading with God not to destroy this people, but remember your servant Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's because God had promised them this land. That, it, that Moses says, do not forget the promises which you yourself have made. And so if we were to ask, why are you saved? Why, why did God choose to save you? Part of what we can say is, God is being faithful to his promises, and he will never go back on his own promises. For the sake of the glory of his name, he will always prove himself to be faithful. Now, what's very important to recognize with all the promises of God all throughout the Bible is that God is always faithful to his promise, even when those to whom he's made the promise, even when they themselves are unfaithful. This is a theme that goes all the way through the scriptures and it's clearly highlighted here. The people of God are unfaithful. They're, they're not righteous. And yet God acts because he is going to be faithful to his own promises, even when in some ways there's no even obligation for him to do so. Uh, there is in the covenant a the blessings that are promised in the covenant are in some ways two ways. There, there's a necessity of uh, covenant obedience in order to be considered to be a member of the covenant. The people of, of God had continually uh, rebuffed all of God's, uh, God's gracious uh, offerings, and 
and they had shown themselves to be outside the covenant in many ways. That's why the, the covenant himself was, was broken. The two tablets were broken to show, to, to show that the people of God were in fact outside uh, of the covenant mercies of God. And yet God is still faithful. He's faithful to all the promises that he has made. This is uh, spoken of, for instance, in, by Paul in 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, after a long string of uh, uh, really beautiful antitheses, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so the Israelites are brought into the land, even though they are sinful, God's faithful to the promises which he has made. Then the people of God rebel when they're in the land. They are continually ruled by others. And yet God is faithful to his promises and raises up judges who uh, save the people over and over again. Then even though the people are 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 uh, unfaithful. God is faithful to his promise to raise up a, a king after his own heart, David. Then the people of God rebel over and over again to the point that they need to go into exile because of their sin. And God is faithful to his promise to bring them back from exile. He's faithful to his promise to give the people a new heart and to send the Messiah, even though they are sinful. And this is in fact a question that the apostle Paul spoke of directly. He says in, again in Romans chapter 3, what if some were unfaithful? That is the Jews. The Jews at the time of Christ were uh, it's probably the most unfaithful generation in, in the history of redemption. Uh, they, you know, they rejected their own Messiah and put him to death. And for this greatest of all sins, their temple was destroyed. And so, so the question then would be, if the people of God were so unfaithful, would that not nullify God's obligation to send his son? And so Paul addresses this. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? If others are not going to be faithful to God, does that mean that God is no longer in obligation to fulfill his promises? He says, by no means. Let God be proved true, though everyone were a liar. Let God be proved true, though everyone were a liar, as is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge and of course, the ultimate example of this is the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what the Apostle Paul is pointing to. When the people of God thoroughly rejected him, God still sent his son to save his people. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your, your salvation, it doesn't say something great about you. It says something great about your God who is willing to uphold his promises, even in the midst of of radical unfaithfulness and rebellion against him. Let God be proved true, though every man a liar. God will never turn back on all the promises which he has made by grace. And Moses notes this, and he says, you are being brought into this land because God is faithful to his promises, even when you yourself are unfaithful. Now, the other thing that's very clear about the grace of God in this passage is that it is dependent upon a mediator which is very, very clear, particularly with the way in which the, the golden calf incident is recounted. Um, very clearly, if the people of God did not have a godly mediator, they would have been destroyed. Uh, the only reason why they are saved, the only reason why they're not destroyed on the spot, is because when God says he's going to destroy the people, Moses falls on his face and even fasts for 40 days and 40 nights and pleads with God not to destroy the people. Notice even Moses' selflessness in all of this. As Moses himself is quite angry with their sin, 
And the Lord himself says, I am going to blot them out. And then particularly in verse 14, I'm going to make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. There is ultimately nothing really in it for Moses to mediate on behalf of the people. He's not doing it for himself. Moses would receive a great glory for being now the patriarch of a new nation that was going to be God's people. And so Moses, God really takes away every um, personal incentive for Moses to mediate on behalf of the people. It was only out of respect for the glory of God and out of love for the people that Moses then acts. Moses wasn't going to receive anything. God had already said, I'll, I'll give you something greater if you don't uh, act as the mediator of this people. And yet Moses is still willing to mediate on behalf of the people, to intercede, to plead and beg with God not to destroy the people. And notice, as Moses recounts more particularly what he actually says, and particularly in verses 25 through 29, there are three things in particular that he appeals to. And that is the work of redemption, the covenant that God has made, which is related to his faithfulness, and the glory of God. Moses says, you know, this, this people, you have redeemed them. You've brought them out of Egypt. And if you do not complete this work of redemption, if you bring them out only to kill them in the wilderness, then the Egyptians are just going to say, look, he wasn't able to fully complete the work. He brought, you brought them out, but uh, either, either you couldn't do it or you just didn't like them, so you hated them. You brought them out to kill them uh, in the wilderness. Uh, how can it be, O Lord, that you would begin this work but not bring it to completion? That's the first thing that Moses says. And the second thing is what we've already looked at. Moses appeals to the covenant faithfulness of God. God, remember the promises which you made. Remember what you said to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and be gracious, and be gracious that you might be seen to be a faithful God. And then thirdly, Moses appeals directly to the glory of God. He appeals to the glory of God. If you kill this people in the wilderness, it will not reflect well on your own name. And so therefore act for the sake of your own glory and save this people. Now, Moses, everything Moses does is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one of the great things we'll see it in Deuteronomy, particularly Deuteronomy chapter 18, that what the people of God were looking for all throughout the Old Testament in a Messiah was God for God to raise up one like Moses from among the brethren. And one of the particular ways in which, Mo, in which Christ as a prophet is a second Moses is that he's not just a prophet, but he's also a prophetic mediator. This is one of the ways in which Moses and Christ are similar, that Moses was the great mediator between God and his people. And so too is Christ. But notice, as the author to the Hebrews says, that Christ is the mediator of a new and a better covenant, which is built upon greater acts of redemption, greater promises, and even is worthy of greater glory. And so even as we think of all of the ways in which Moses acts as a mediator between God and his people, Christ acts the same way, but in a much greater, in a much greater way. Because when, Mo, when, when Christ pleads for God to finish the work of redemption that's been started, it's a far greater act of redemption that has been started in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he pleads with God to be faithful to his own promises. There are the promises that have been made in the Son of God himself. There are far greater promises. And when, and when Christ uh, pleads with God to have respect for his own glory, 
That glory is seen first and foremost in the acts of redemption whereby these people are saved, whereby you and I are saved. Moses' mediation is, is uh, nothing in comparison with the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the mediator of a new and a better covenant. And so if we were to ask then, why are you saved? It is not because of your righteousness. It's not because of your righteousness that one day you will enter the land of Canaan, the new heavens and the new earth. You will not do it because of your righteousness. It will only be because God is faithful to his promises and because God has granted a mediator. That's the way in which God has shown his grace. And it removes every semblance, anything that you could possibly bring and acquire to yourself and say, I did this. I did this by my own strength. And therefore I will boast in what I have done. All of that is wiped away. It is because of God's promises that you are where you are, and it is because of the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing that you have contributed to your own salvation is the sin that you must be saved from. And so, as chapter 10, in chapter 10, the first 11 verses, Moses recounts the way in which all of these things, the grace of God, triumphs over the ungodliness of the people. And he does, in fact, reinstate the uh, the people of God into the covenant. The tablets are remade. They're put back into the ark, showing that the covenant is now in place again. Uh, There is a a little um, description of Aaron and where he dies, showing that Moses' mediation was, in fact, helpful to him. He didn't, Moses, uh, Aaron did not just die immediately in the wilderness, but he was able to live out most of the 40 years showing that God had listened to Moses again. The Levites are still appointed to handle all of the holy things. They're to be able to follow the worship according to the pattern that was shown to Moses on the mountain, and the journey begins again. Ultimately, God was gracious to his people. He would be Moses is trying to drive home. Everything that Moses is saying is trying to get the people of God to understand what love for God is. What is it that causes the heart to be drawn out with love to God with all of its heart, soul, and strength? Ultimately here what Moses is saying is that in order to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, you must see that everything good that you have comes to you only by the grace of God. You must give up every claim that you have of anything whereby you can accrue praise for yourself, you must see the depth of your sin. And then from that point, then look at the grace of God and to see that without that grace, you would be just like the Canaanites who were wiped off the face of the planet. And God would be quite just to do so. You are not saved because of your righteousness. You are saved because you have a great savior. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you for the grace that you have shown to us in your Son. Lord, we, we can say even as we know that there are many people who on the last day will be judged because of their wickedness and sin, Lord, we can look and see that if it were not for your grace, we would be in the exact same position, that it is not because of our own righteousness that we are in any way distinguished from those who are under your wrath, 
but it is only because of your grace which you have shown to us. Lord, we are in awe when we think of such things, that you would look with pity upon a people that had done nothing but rebel against you. Lord, we confess all the ways in which we do continue to sin against you, even after we have received the grace that was won for us by the blood of your own Son. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us to see your grace anew, that our hearts would be enthralled with what you have done for us, and that we would be lifted up in our hearts to grow in our love for you, that we would truly love you with all of our heart, soul, and strength. For Lord, we do ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, please give us a five-star review as this will help make the Word of God preached more available to others. Also, if you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F dot com.